It's Sherry from No Crumbs Left, and I'm so excited today about this podcast. I have my dear friend Dana Hurt with me, and Dana um, is a friend that I met through a friend. She's uh, a parent coach, and uh, I think she's the smartest parent that I know, absolutely. And I want to um, talk a little bit about how we met and then talk a little bit about you know how it is that I end up talking about parenting on my page when I'm a food blogger. Um, hi, Dana. Hi, Terry. So happy to be here. I'm so happy that you're here. I think of Dana as as strong of a personality and talks as loud and uh, has that same sort of zhuzh. So we have that connection. Um, how do you get to be such a smart parent? Wow. I wish I could say that there was a course I took, but I think part of it really for me was just experience and time. I think I am essentially an intuitive parent. I think that things came naturally to me, but I am clear on the fact that I grew into my role of parenting as I had years in the job. Um, I think my youngest child will say he learned a lot from watching me with my first two. (laughs) I love that. I love that. You know, people wonder, how is it that I talk about parenting on my page? And, you know, what it works out is that I'm a food blogger, but I end up sharing so much of my life because as I give little snippets on the stories, people say, oh, we want to know more about that. Or how did Lucy turn out that way? Or how is Patrick so great? So um, it's been fun just to organically share not only my parenting journey, but to share, you know, my journey of having been a child and losing my parents. And all of that is something that I is, is part of my heart. And I like to share that. About We met about 10 or 11 years ago. I was going through a divorce, and uh, a friend said, I want to fix you up with my friend Dana. She's also in a transition, and I think it would be you guys would be great friends. Um, and we met, and like from the get-go, I had a girl crush on you. I was just like, oh, my God, she is so cool, and I really want to be her friend, but she seems super popular, and I'm not even sure I'm cool enough to be in the friend group. I mean, I'll tell you that. Like, quite honestly, that's how I felt. <laughs> just immediately so attracted to each other. Um, one of the things I love about you is you're someone who I admire. You've, you've been through a divorce and I've seen the way you have always really put your kids first and not put your kids in the middle of anything. And I've been able to navigate that myself. I'm good friends with my, the father of my kids. And you were a person who really helped me with that. And I, I don't even know that I've told you that, but, um, you, I saw the way you navigated things and, you know, you're a person that I came to every time I wanted to even react from a certain place to say, what do I do here, Dana? What do I do here? And, you know, I'm not a person often really going to people and saying, what do I do here necessarily? You know, when it comes to food, yes. But I just so trusted myself with you. It was like, Dana, I don't know what to do. And you'd be like, okay, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to do this. And you really helped train me. And I want to say I was a brilliant student because I have a really successful, you know, divorce and I consider my good friend and we, you know, spend time together and take some vacations, and we love and adore our children, and we've, we've been able to put them first. So tell me a little bit about your journey with that, and uh, you know, just tell me about that. Well, first of all, I want to back up to our meeting, because I, too, was just so taken with you. I loved your... You're just so present and so authentic and so warm. And, you know, shout out to Michelle. Thank you for the, for the hookup. Um, I don't think we're allowed to say hookup anymore in, in today's generation. But thank you for the setup. It was um, – I remember meeting you. I remember the first time we sat down. And we really were 
like instantly connected and talked very intimately about what was going on in our life. And they were really difficult moments for both of us. Um, and I do remember your tuna fish. I will say that you brought tuna fish as like a welcome to the new friendship gift. And I think you had me at the tuna. So I, I was I was already I was already yours. <laughs> the tuna was enough, and then you were just this huge bonus. Um, but I will say that I. I was very, it was very important to me to not have my divorce be what my experience was as a child of divorce. So I really had a blueprint of what not to do. And I think I shared that with you at the time. And you were just extraordinarily responsive about wanting to co-parent effectively, about wanting to protect this relationship that had been so important to you, and understanding the incredibly important role that your ex-husband, the father of your children, would have in their lives forever, and how much we, as divorced people, will go on to share our children's lives with these ex-partners. So I, too, am friends with my ex. My ex and his amazing new wife and I are going to be traveling with the kids this winter break together, and I'm so proud of that. I'm proud of the relationship we formed. I'm proud of what we model for our children, and I'm also excited to say this is what family looks like today. Like, we have a narrow construct of family. It's just not right. We all need to be able to embrace a really different way of thinking about family, and it includes um, ex-spouses and ex-in-laws and ex um, brothers and sisters-in-laws, and it includes new boyfriends and girlfriends. And the more love our children have in their lives, the better. I couldn't agree more. Um, Stephen, you know, has a partner, and his partner has come with us, you know, for Christmas, and we all have a great time together. And it's just like more family, more love, more ways to open up. So I think it's like a choice. You can, for the rest of your life, complain about your ex and, you know, people want to. And you can fight and you can put your kids in the middle. Or you can say, there's a whole new paradigm. It's completely a choice. And I'm going to make a decision how to do it. And you and I both know, um, you know, how to do it the good way. So we feel good about that. Right. Well, I remember someone said to me, you can take poison the rest of your life and wait for it to kill your enemies. So I made a choice to say I can have every event that I share with my ex-husband to have that little tinge of sadness or regret or whatever. Or I can say this is the father of my children. Together we made the three most magnificent people who are the greatest joy in my life. And I want to have nothing but happiness in those moments. Right. I love that. I love that. Tell me a little bit about your parenting philosophy. Well, you know, my parenting philosophy has always been um, really centered on the notion of intention, um, intentionality, being thoughtful about what outcomes are you looking to achieve, and being mindful that choices that you make move you in that direction. So I'm very value-centered. What do I care about? I care about having compassionate, resilient, good children. And to get there, I had to kind of take a step back and say, if that's my goal, if that's my end game. What are the steps needed to get me there? And to be really thoughtful and intentional about every decision I made, whether it was letting them cry and do sleep training, which is horribly painful for a lot of parents, whether it was making decisions about what kind of education, how religion would factor into their lives, how I thought about drinking and drugs and sex and all the things those of you out there with teenage children know you faced, your values have to inform all of those decisions. I love that. Tell me more. 
it's really central to how I think. So I thought about my values and they became my template, my blueprint for how I thought about choices I was making. And it allowed me to face every parenting decision with that kind of firmly anchored in my mind. So I didn't have to kind of face each situation and think, oh no, what do I do now? Because as you know, as a mom, there are new challenges thrown at you every second. And the second you think you've got it figured out, oh, Patrick's, it's all smooth. Patrick's coming along. He's happy in school. Pop up another child. And whatever you had in place for Patrick, the next one says, yeah, not so much. Right. I got my own plan. And right. that, that little timeout plan that worked for Patrick, not going to work for me because I plan on breaking things. So whatever it is, that's the reality of children. New developmental milestones, new, new, a new baby in the house, something in the our experience with a, a parent who passes or a separation or divorce, those things are disruptive. And if we know kind of what we believe and how we feel, we use that to guide our decision-making. And it allows us to have something to kind of anchor decisions to. And so the kind of, to me, the other kind of key piece of that is the notion of pivoting, being able to say, this isn't working and coming up with a new plan. And when they're little, we don't say this isn't working to them. That's something that kind of comes from the external and they just see the change. But when they get older, that this isn't working conversation is out loud. We had family meeting in my house every Sunday night. And a lot of those family meetings had the this isn't working section where I said, guys, this isn't working and we need to come up with another plan because you are so busy with your friends that I never see you. And in this house, we value family. And so if we're going to make time for family, we need to do that intentionally. So your friends can come over for Shabbat dinner, but I want you home. You can go out Saturday night, but I want to make sure that you're here Sunday morning with your grandparents for breakfast. I love that. I think I remember... So when you have your Sunday meeting, are you also talking about schedule? And I, tell us about the Sunday meeting. I remember this now, and it was, like, so impressive. So Sunday night family meeting, when we first started it, I think no one was ex too excited about it except for me. Um, <laughs> I thought it was <laughs> yeah. the greatest idea ever because I always think my ideas are great. And I think everybody else is kind of like, oh, here we go again. But we all sat on the couch. It was in neutral space, not in anybody's bedroom, but in neutral space. And we would sit down, and it would be – Let's discuss the week. So part of it was schedule. When you have three children and you've got dance and basketball and soccer and after school activities and whatever it was, it was just purely schedule. This is what the week looks like, letting kids anticipate what's to come. It was also menu planning. Um, and don't think that I didn't always look to you to get good I ideas. That. I love but that. But it was menu planning. If I knew that we had you know, two different activities after school and it was going to be a rush night, it was a great night to do taco night or it was a great night to just quickly do tilapia, something that was fast and easy. If I knew that I had a lot of time to cook and prep, then it would be more elaborate meal. Um, but it allowed me to anticipate and plan so you could know heroin chicken was coming on Wednesday. Right. So you're marinating on Monday. And marinating it on Monday. So there was family meeting were schedules, family meeting were touch base, what's going on. It wasn't just for me to say this isn't working, but for, you know, somebody else in the family to jump in and say, I'm having a problem. You know, if you're driving me to school every day, said to an older sibling, it would be nice if you were on time. Um, those kinds of things. So family meeting really became a safe place to bring up family issues, to anticipate the schedule, to plan for menus, and just to kind of stay anchored and connected. I love that. That's so impressive. Um, 
you know, there's all these different ages for kids. Um, so what is your advice? I mean, what specifically do we do? We know when they're little, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, I feel like there's boundaries required. It's like you got to count on your nap. You have to count on these certain things happening at certain hours, you know, um, meals and that kind of family time is important. I mean, I, for myself, when my kids were little, I really didn't have them watch TV. They didn't even know about, you know, things like that until they were like five or six. I was a person, I didn't give my kids Coca-Cola and things like that. I just, I'm a real foods mom and it was important to me, you know, that they, that they ate real food and all of that. So these boundaries to me were, were some of the things that are important, but of course it's different in middle school, you know, and then it's different when you have high schoolers who were like, they can just be like awful and you have to be the police. So talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I think it's beautiful the way you just laid it out. The truth is every developmental milestone has something that's like breathtakingly amazing and something that's horrifically challenging. You know, in my practice, I have people with babies who are struggling with getting them sleep trained, struggling with setting limits with in-laws visiting, struggling with managing, aligning their values as a couple to raise this baby. I have lots of clients with toddlers who say to me, is it okay to hate your toddler? And I say, yes, we right. all go through moments where we hate your, our toddlers. Right. And part of being, you know, raising that toddler is great practice for the teenager because toddlers and teenagers are often flexing the same very muscle, similar, right. very similar muscle. They just flex it so differently. But the truth is, is that every phase I think has unique challenges. And that's, that's kind of, to me, what's fun about parenting. So there's opportunity. But if you're anchored in your values, if you know what you care deeply about, it allows you to navigate all of those things. So when they're toddlers, I agree, there's much more about routine, being able to predict, helping kids navigate transitions because they know what to expect. That factors into family meeting. Let me help you look at the week. I had a calendar that was in the kitchen. Every child was color-coded, so they knew what was coming. At the back door, there was a bulletin board that just had that day's activities. So you would know if you had soccer practice, you probably needed your soccer cleats. And so it was a way of helping them kind of gain that independence. But you're right, as they get older, there's different things you have to consider. The importance of those relationships with their friends, the central nature of those relationships, the imperative need to differentiate from you as the parent, to separate, that's not just a nice thing. That's a, a significantly important thing. Without that, there are huge deficits in kids. Right. So to give them room to separate while still being tethered, enough rope for freedom without enough rope to hang yourself, enough room to explore, but enough opportunity to have us be that frontal lobe that they don't have right. to help them anticipate consequences. And so our role with them changes and changes and changes. And now I have three adult children. You have two adult right. children. It's a whole new world. It's a whole new world. And I mean, it's, it's exciting. unbelievable. Yes. Yes, I mean, there's exciting. nothing greater than yeah. this. I am. I feel so delighted every day. I miss them deeply, as I yes. know you do. Yes. We've talked yeah. about this. Right. Um, I wish they all lived in Chicago. I wish they had found their next place here. Right. But I'm also so proud of them and so grateful for the people they've become and so in awe. Yeah. of who they've become and the journey that they're on. It's exciting. I mean, the letting go is, well, that's a whole nother brutal. podcast. It's brutal. But the thing is, is that watching them, you know, walk into their adult life, seeing how they navigate, seeing my kids live five minutes apart. You know, Lucy's the other day over at Patrick's, you know, getting him clothes, doing what, doing whatever. Um, oh, I saw Patrick him. was helping her cook. Even though yeah, he's yeah. totally raw, he's helping her plan a menu totally. for her girlfriend. Loved it. Totally. So that's exciting. And their father lives about two hours away. So they all get to have a lot of family time. And that makes me infinitely really, really happy. But of course, you know, there's the missing them. 
So let's bring it back to middle school. That There's a whole set of challenges. I mean, one of the things about middle school that I loved was we had a teacher who basically said in fourth grade, um, you really your child needs to have independence. They should start taking the bus by themselves. They should start taking the train. You know, I was a little bit of a helicopter parent. So it was like, it was so wild for me to go like, oh, wow, I am going to trust and I am going to do this. Um, and I don't know that I did it at the moment, but it was definitely a paradigm shift for me that said, if this is what is required, this is what I need to bring. You know, I mean, there's a lot of it's easy to be in the world we're in and to be really just just to be doing a fear based parenting. Uh, but I really did give my kids a lot of freedom. And I mean, in middle school, I let them go off to the Cubs game by themselves. They went, you know, with themselves and with another friend and things like that. But I took that as an invitation to give my kids freedom, and I'm I'm glad that I did. You know, middle school, listen, any transition is, is really relevant and resonant for parents. Um, I know that for me, when I was um, getting divorced, I felt really overwhelmed, and I felt like I was drowning. And I remember thinking, like, how am I going to keep myself afloat and these three children? And I remember thinking one day, looking around kind of in, in that image in my head of kind of drowning and thinking, wow, all three of them know how to swim. And it was kind of this really important moment for me as a parent to realize it's not our job to do everything for them. And that, in fact, doing everything for them handicaps them. We need to give them the freedom and autonomy to try, to fail, to build resilience. It's one of my key values is to build resilient children. And I was getting in the way of that because I was over-parenting. And I saw that as a sign of good parenting, um, and I was wrong. So um, not to criticize the over-parents out there, but for me it was wrong. And so for me, middle school is a really unique opportunity to do exactly what you just said, which is to give them a little more independence, to start to flex that muscle, but to do it in a mindful, intentional way. So so they don't magically turn 12 or 13 or 14 and all of a sudden have the wherewithal to navigate the city. You need to teach them. You need to show them how to be on the CTA. You need to teach them how to use the Ventra card. You need to give them experiences and you need to help them anticipate consequences. And this goes back to what I said about the brain. Neurologically, the more and more we learn about neuroscience, the more it says that the adolescent brain doesn't fully develop until 26, 27, 28. We used to think it was much earlier. Well, we know that now, so that means there is no frontal lobe development. They can't anticipate consequences. They don't have metacognition. They don't have the ability to have brilliant executive functioning. So what are, how do you help them anticipate that? If the train stops, been on the brown line lately, if the train stops, what do you do? What are your options? How are you going to navigate that situation so that they can anticipate the problems and already have strategies in place? And that's where we as the adults in their life have to help. The other thing I want to say about middle school is that I think parents have this sense in their head often that if they're ready to do this, they're just ready to do this. And so the kids start saying, hey, I'm going to Jimmy's house. Hey, I'm going over with Ben. Children that age don't get to tell. They still need to be asking. So they can be saying, I want to get together with Ben. Ben and I were talking at school. We want to have plans. And you can say, that sounds good. Where are you going? What's your plan to get home? Blah, blah, blah. The, you know, the myriad questions we as the moms and dads and parents in their lives think of. But we don't just get to all of a sudden take a back seat and these kids are then running their own lives. It's not developmentally appropriate in middle school. Right. So if you consider then what happens in the teenage years. 
And teenage years, again, like I said, it's flexing that same toddler muscle, but flexing in a much bigger person with much bigger consequences. And so the teenage year presents challenges for a lot of parents. I have a lot of parents of teenagers in my practice who are struggling with how do I deal with drinking? How do I deal with drugs? How do I deal with sex? Oh, don't forget, they're getting their driver's license. That's a huge issue for a lot of families because talk about independence, but also talk about risk, talk about danger, talk about fear. All of that's resonant. So for me, when I think about those things, let me use driving as an example. When my kids got to be the age to start driving, I created a driver's contract. I looked at the police department to see what they had. I looked to my insurance company to see what they had. I spoke to a friend of mine who is an ex-police officer, and I wanted to really construct a driving contract that reflected my values. What does it mean to be a driver? What does it mean in terms of um, legally? What does it mean in terms of safety? But what does it mean in terms of my family values? If you're the oldest child and you have your driver's license, guess what? You also got your chauffeur's license. There's a responsibility to being a driver in this house. You're pitching in. You're helping out. And all of my kids signed that driver's contract, and it was reviewed after three months to make sure they understood all the nuances. And it, it, and it came to bear because you do, in fact, hit things when you drive. And so when my oldest son knocked off the side view mirror... He knew from the driving contract what his responsibility was to fix that side view mirror, to take responsibility, to get it the bid at the dealership, to bring it there to get it fixed, and to pay for it. So all of that stuff was stuff I constructed ahead of time because I have a frontal lobe. That's my parental superpower, and kids don't. And so as they navigate these big challenges in high school and teenage years, it's our job to be there. It's our job to anticipate consequences. It's our job to help them think through the decisions they're making, but we also need to give them room to fail. We need to give them room to stumble. And I'm not a big believer in um, this whole policy of, you know, one mistake and you're out, you know, zero tolerance. I'm not a fan of zero tolerance. To me, Adolescents need room to make mistakes, need room for restorative justice, and need room to learn. I'm not afraid of mistakes. I'm afraid of not learning from them. And that's the message I felt like was so central to how I thought about raising kids during those tumultuous years. I remember, actually, you got me going on some contracts with Patrick. I mean, Patrick in high school was, and I mean, here's the thing. All kids are different, and I know you'll touch on that. I mean, uh, Patrick was... Uh, it's more of a challenge for me. And, you know, he didn't really want to go to school. And so that is a challenge. And um, definitely you helped me institute the the contract in our house, which which I love. Um, so speak to that. What do you do if you've got a kid that just, it's like, yeah, well, I'm not going to school. I mean, when you've got that kind of a thing. You know, Terry, when I first talked to you about Patrick, I remember just being so impressed with your your ability to see this as Patrick's journey. I work with a lot of parents who take their kid's departure from kind of like the straight line as a narcissistic injury or as um, just like a, a concern. Like, you know, my child isn't following the path. And I think that if I could, you know, wave a magic wand and get parents to hear something, I would have them say, it's not a straight line. There is no parenting straight line. There are myriad zigs and zags on everyone's parenting path. And if we can kind of embrace that and let our children have the flexibility and room to have those wiggles, to have those zigs and zags, we will be better for it and they will be better for it. And I remember sitting across from you and thinking, she's so clear 
about this is Patrick. This is not Terry. This isn't about I need to tell everyone that my son is an A student. I need to tell everyone that he's graduating on time. I need to tell everybody that he's going to the Ivy League. No. For you, it was like, what do I need to do that's going to be the best for Patrick? How do I support him? But how do I also protect him from himself? Because adolescents are impulsive. I mean, they don't make the greatest decisions. Why? Because they don't have the frontal lobe. They don't anticipate consequences. And you were there to provide those kind of like bumpers in right. the in the in the alley in the bowling alley there were bumpers he couldn't go so far a- away that he would be in trouble but he had room to kind of do it his way and if we can if we can allow our kids to do that and let they know that they, they were we love them and that we're going to support them but we still have expectations and we still have values for behavior and and comportment it'd be, be great great for them great for us you know, my kids were are, are so different, and the reality is all kids are so different. You know, neither of my kids really followed, I would say, the ordinary path. I didn't follow the ordinary path, and I was lucky because my father was like, he really wanted us to be the best we could be, whatever that was. He didn't have an expectation that we are a doctor or a lawyer. He just wanted us to live our best life. You know, he really, he was a man who certainly parented from his own values. I mean, he parented in many ways, same way that you do. Um, in the same way that I do. But he really loved and accepted his girls for who they were. And then for the grandkids, he really celebrated. So it's like, you know, my son is an artist. You know, he's a songwriter. Um, and so we embrace that. We're all about that. We're excited about that. You know, Lucy went to school because I really wanted her to. But after two years, she was like, I absolutely hate school. And I saw that it was actually physically making her ill. So even though I'm like, this is an amazing opportunity and this is what you should do, when she came home and said, you know, Mom, I'm only at school for one reason, and that's because you want me to be there. And, you know, and I had said to Zach earlier in the year, I just want to tell you when she comes home, she's not going back to school. I just, I know she's not. And she came home and she's like, you know, I'm only staying for you, and I, you know, I pretty much am not going to be going back. And I was like, okay. And I said, well, this is my thing. Why don't you think of it as a gap year? Think of it as a gap year. You're going to go do your thing. You got some money saved. You're able to do this. And then you're going to reevaluate and figure out because whether it's today, tomorrow, in a week, in two years, that's something you can go back to, but let's not make a firm decision. Um, so, you know, what I find for so many parents is they, they're so attached to who they want their kids to be rather than really, you know, uh, loving your children for who they are. That is really what is an act of kindness. And then doing the best to give them what you can to help them keep on track and, you know, live the best life that they can. Right. Um, that's what my dad did for us, for me and for my sisters, and I feel, feel lucky. Well, I think your dad and you haven't been focused on the what. You haven't been focused on what they'll be. You've been focused on who they'll be and having them be their best selves, their most authentic selves. And, you know, I think that we also have to give ourselves room to mourn the fantasy. Um, I will never forget when Oliver was in nursery school, the nursery teacher pulled me aside and said, the speech therapists were in today, and they evaluate all the children, and your son's going to need speech therapy. And I remember thinking, I'm sorry, my perfect son is going to need speech therapy. You must be wrong. The little blonde one with the blue eyes, he's perfect. He doesn't need speech therapy. Something so ridiculous as the need for speech therapy was like an injury to me. Like, he's not perfect anymore. Of course, how could he need this? But it's it's you can... We all have to kind of let go of that notion of 
whatever that is, that construct is for us about this perfect child. And we have to mourn that. You know, whether it's a kid who has a massive learning disability, for whom school is never going to be an easy place, who's going to need really an alternative approach, whether it's, you know, your fantasy that she was going to go to university and have this university experience either like yours or like ones you had heard about, it's okay to say, I wish it had been that way. I wish she loved college more. I wish she had a different experience. And mourn it and let it go and then say, who's Lucy going to be? Because Lucy is now exploring herself and her world and her life. And for those of us who are lucky enough to know her, and if those of you who don't, just watch her on No Crumbs Left Kid on the on her Instagram feed. But you get to see her journey. Yeah, and who exciting. wouldn't be compelled by watching that magnificent young woman? Oh, I feel the same. You know, when Lucy... You know, um, when Lucy said, you know, I got a girlfriend, so I was like, oh, well, you know, what does that mean? Are you gay? You know, and, and it's like, well, she doesn't live in the world of those labels. It's like, well, I'm queer, and, and this is what that means. And I remember going, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to have a son-in-law. I mean, there was just that thought of like, oh, someday I'm going to have a son-in-law and whatever. And I just had that thing like, I'm not going to have a son-in-law. And I said to Zach, you know, who's my dear friend who I work with, I am, I feel sad that I'm not going to have a son-in-law. Is that okay? You know? Yes. You know, not that... only is it okay, it's authentic and legitimate and profound. And the more we can talk that way to our, our each other and to everyone, the more we all have permission. Yeah, it was important. I was just like, I feel sad and I kind of want to cry. And, and that was really my only sadness. It was not about Lucy being with a woman because how fantastic to be with a woman. Who doesn't want to be with a woman? They're beautiful. But it was like, oh, I'm not going to have a son-in-law. I'm not going to have that thing. Um, and I said, Zach, is it okay to be sad? And he said, yeah, and it's absolutely normal. So it's like I let myself have that. And soon enough, I really wasn't. And what I discovered about about your girlfriend having a daughter, your daughter having a girlfriend, is that they love you so much. There's not really that sort of tension with, with, with a girlfriend for a boy. It's a different thing. They just love you and embrace you, and they're like, you're a second mother, and they just act like they're another daughter. So there's none of that tension. And what I realize is it's just about the loveliest thing in the world. Yeah, well, you got lucky. But yeah. you're, I always say you reap what you sow. You know, my mom has a really extraordinary relationship with all three of my children, and she's constantly is thanking me. Thank you for making this possible. Thank you for making me central in your life. Thank you for allowing me to have these relationships. And it's not that I'm not appreciative of the thank yous, but I always say, stop thanking me. This isn't about anything I did. This is about what you did. You were present. You were engaged. You've been there for them. And you reap what you sow. So, you know, you're getting back from Lucy and from Lucy's partner exactly what you've put out there for them, which is love, acceptance, appreciation, understanding, and so that's what's reflected back to you. So it's really, it's really what you did. And yes, your daughter's magnificent and her partner is lovely. And, you know, you got lucky in that way. Right. They, but it's, it's what you've nurtured that's allowed them to have the relationship with you that they do. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me, devotion plays into that. You know, my mother was, has really had devotion for us. And I don't mean a blind kind of devotion that she was like a pushover. But what I knew was that I was really, really loved. And it is, you know the best gift in the world. And it's always like, if you've been given a lot, a lot is expected. I was given so much love, acceptance, and understanding. So really, for me, I want to put that back out into the world. And so, you know, people often say, well, what did you do to have these great kids? You know, a lot of people have great kids. But I, I the one thing I know for sure is I loved my kids a lot. That's what I can say about my parenting is that I absolutely am devoted to my kids. I, I love them. And also, I've, I've had to also let go and be like, be like roots and wings. And my dad always taught us that. It's like roots and wings. So it's like I know 
you know, that I'm the roots. And it's like I'm excited to see them soar. And, you know, once you say, well, I, I have to do that, I mean, when you get to the process of, like, it's the last day and they're going out the door, it's horrifying. It is the worst thing in the world. And it, it's just – it's like the fear in anticipation. And then what you find is that it's okay – and then you just you look for your new chapters and you look for your new tomorrows because the best way that I can love my kids is to have a full, wonderful life. You know, Patrick will be like, gosh, every time I call you, you're not available. I mean, you've got this, you've got that. You know, he's like a little bit stunned that I'm not, you know. But that's part of what we need to do, and they need to do that also. And we always prioritize like you guys do, and we make that time for family. And, uh, you know, with half my kids, with my kids on the West Coast and three of the family members out there, um, you know, it's you got to find new ways to gather and new ways to make it happen because, you know, my parents are gone. That house we celebrated is gone. So it's like we have to create new tomorrows. 100 percent. And new and new traditions. I mean, I think it's really important for families to have traditions. I wrote a blog about it. My brother-in-law um, on Christmas every year, they're Jewish. They don't celebrate Christmas. They go to a 7-Eleven, some kind of convenience store, and all three children get to pick one drink and one food of their choice. And they call it some crazy, you know, multi-worded thing like the Hurt Family Annual before Christmas, go to the convenience store and buy crap, whatever it is. And this is this ridiculous acronym, but it's it's their family tradition, and it's something special that their family does. And traditions can be funny and and warm and special and crazy and whatever, but it's a way that you get to be your family. And I, I think about how hard it was for me to launch my children because they're so central to who I am, how I define myself, how I think about myself. But I appreciate from having clients with children who can't be launched for whatever developmental reasons or are not able to be ready to go and leave their home and who will maybe always need special care and um, a different kind of environment, how painful it is that they can't launch. And so I feel fundamentally grateful that we were in a position to launch. So as sad as I am to see them go, I'm so grateful that they are able to be launched and ready to go explore their world and it, and, and to redefine success right. because it's you have to stumble a lot and you learn from all of those moments and so it's an interesting opportunity for our children and um, it's an exciting exciting time to be the mom of grown children and I feel really fundamentally grateful every day for them yeah I love that well so much of it really is about gratitude and so much about joy in life is about bringing it back to gratitude tell me about the Eli talk you did and what well, is an Eli talk what is an Eli talk well Eli talks are um, really an opportunity to talk about a kind of a central Jewish idea, and um, it's it's like a Jewish TED talk. It's it's really centered on something that is going to enliven a conversation in the Jewish world about whatever topic. And for me, my topic was intentional parenting. So my Eli talk was filmed in Detroit in June in front of a live audience. It was the one of the most challenging things I've ever done. I would say it so. was a ten minute talk, <laughs> no notes, no teleprompter, live. Um, just standing there, and uh, I'm having anxiety. Just I was feeling. It's it. funny because I speak publicly all the time. I love to speak publicly. My friends tease me that I've never met a microphone I didn't like, <laughs> but um, it was really a struggle because um, I wanted the talk to really reflect the way I think about my practice, the way I think about my parenting, but to be anchored in a very authentic way to what it means to me to be a Jewish parent. So my Eli talk is all about intentional parenting and a, a lot about what we talked about today about knowing your values about. Anchoring decisions to those values, about being able 
able to pivot when things aren't working and to then knowing how much those things inform the way you raise your children and the kinds of children you're going to get at the end of that. Um, so my Eli Talk just went live yesterday. Oh, my gosh. I know it's super, practically going viral. It's, it's super amazing. excited about it and really proud of it. Yeah, I bet you are. I'm going to definitely do the swipe up so that people can go to this. And then my question is, tell me like about your website and if people are living in Nebraska, but they go, gosh, we'd like to get a session or two with Dana. Maybe we can't do like every week, you know, coaching, but we'd like to just have someone to check in once a month. I mean, for me to have had you as a person that I can check in with, the most valuable parenting tool I have ever had is being able to call you and saying, Dana, I don't know what to do here. And the advice is always just like, like it is today. I mean, I'm sitting here. I'm completely blown away by what you're saying. I love you. I am, I so admire what you're doing. And I'm just seeing your light shine. And I'm like, I want to cry. It makes me so happy. That uh, means a lot to me. Well, Dana Hurt Parenting, because I'm super inventive. Um, so it shouldn't be that hard to find me. Um, and I do have a lot of clients who aren't local. When I initially developed my practice, I had this fantasy about working with parents over the lifetime of their children and we'd meet when their children were babies and on and on and on. But actually, I see a lot of parents in really short, interventive moments and typically around transition, as you identified so perfectly. You know, I have a baby. I have a toddler. My toddler's starting school. My school-age child is going to middle school. I'm transitioning to high school. I'm transitioning to college. My college child has come home and is living in the house. What are kind of, what's normative behavior? What can I expect? Can I have a curfew? you for a 21 year old you know all of those things so I I see a really a wide range of of parents um, with very different issues and needs that are happening for them and their children and I do a lot of it on the phone and I actually enjoy that and I also have quite a niche in my practice for divorced parents as a child of divorce as a divorced person myself I'm very committed to co-parenting to effective co-parenting so I have a number of divorced clients who care deeply about doing right by their kids and want to know how to co-parent more effectively I love that well this was amazing Thank you so much for joining. It's an incredible talk. I love you. Keep spreading your light. And you guys come over and find me at No Crumbs Left, both on Instagram, um, Facebook, and the blogs. we got lots of good stuff going on. I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for this opportunity. Um, I have been a huge follower of yours from before you were famous. Um, just so impressed with what you've accomplished and the way in which you share um, your audience and your platform with others like me and and how you share your life with all of us. So the food would be enough, as they say, <laughs> Dianu, but all the things that you put and give us past that is a blessing to all of us. So thank you. Oh, you're so welcome.